Thank you for the opportunity to be with you and open the world again. What I've had in mind is uh, connected with camp, because that's the big sphere of witness just now, and you are the people who are chosen by the Lord to be upholding them and giving them the strength on which it really depends. The power of the prayer meeting is a vital pillar of all the service of a church of God. And this time of ministry goes with that. We, of course, as you see, uh, are traveling people at the present. We arrived last Tuesday, uh, Monday rather, uh, we were out of that accommodation on Thursday because the lady is strongly booked because of the musical events, three in a row in Tatton Park at the end of the week, of which we managed not to escape the middle one. Um, the preparation for it, the geese escaped with loud honkings, the swans stayed to be part of the picture. Um, but we made our discreet way out. Um, and then we uh, were with Raymond and Ray, and then back to where we are, and then out of there this morning to connect and make transport here. Um, words of passage. So we're going to look at the Lord traveling and follow with him. How it's recorded by Luke, who was mentioned in the remembrance and his special perspective as the understanding doctor and as a man of culture who writes sophisticated Greek, but he writes so simply when he wishes. And he writes at times just to pick up the language of the people that he has come to inherit from, the language of Israel. He has Hebraic expressions from time to time. And other times he's writing for Theophilus, we understand the Roman um, official of government, and he's writing for you and me, because he wants to get this message out to all the nations, and has found it so riveting himself. He's gone to a lot of trouble to gather the information that is distinctive in his account. And then, of course, in his second book, he writes so much of the New Testament. So shall we read um, just some parts of Luke chapter 8, especially the opening? of Luke chapter 8. And it begins with the important words after this. Some of Luke's gospel is very strictly in sequence of time. Unlike what his broad brush said, that Matthew works and Mark a mark work in sequence of time and Luke selects according to theme. They all do that. And perhaps Mark <coughs> least, but the others do. And here we are reading a chapter which is very much governed by the times that he sets on it. After this, and that was about the woman in the city who was a sinner. And he doesn't say who she was, I think, out of considerateness for her family, because surely, surely, she came into the church. And she was part of those who benefited from the day of Pentecost onwards. Um, 
and her family would be in the church. And when Luke was writing, he would have regard for that. And then he's writing about different people altogether, I think, in the opening of this chapter. Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, perhaps of both, perhaps separately. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means, them being all disciples, and the Lord. While a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as is often done, let's read the uh, exposition that the Lord gives from verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. I forgot to say that I'm reading from the New International Version, and it's the rather ancient now version of the 1980s from which I'm reading. The little passage that we've just read, I believe, has a message for those who are sowing the gospel and its first steps, and also for those who are absorbing the gospel and its call to the kingdom, and how one projects that to others who have heard some things from the world but have not given the attention to other things that it has been the privilege of those who have been taught, as we have been taught in the fellowship, um, to receive. And we also, of course, have things to learn from those who have studied the scriptures intensively and benefited in other ways from which we also draw, for instance, the very hymn that we began with and other ministries of that sort. It is interesting here, and I would have made more of it if we had someone who was fresh to the gospel here this afternoon. We are interesting to read what Luke especially adds to this. Unlike the other writers, his record says that one of these things that choke the word among life's worries and riches and pleasures. Life's pleasures. And they do not mature. We follow 
the work of the church in Manchester, naturally, because we have an investment in uh, your presence, um, but also because we read about you and, and the intelligence and we hear about what your plans are on SoundCloud and the project for giving ministry that also amplifies the fullness of the gospel, which is our lifeline as saints today, how we maintain our faith. And what we say today is intended to reach some who, unknown to even local people, is perhaps distanced by the pressures of life and its business in the course of the week. Whether gradually and you pull yourself up from time to time and realize that there are parts, there are gaps that we've allowed to develop in our relationship with the Lord and they need to be addressed. And in that way, the gospel does its work for each one of us. It's never stale when we come in the right spirit to it. And then there is the challenge going out to others and the fact that we are all uh, under command. We are on orders to get the message out in this week, today, tonight. Whether we're awake in the hours of the night to pray over it or to need it ourselves to keep going and to have something to take to other people and to have the confidence to think that we, if we choose a moment as led by the Spirit, can speak about the kind of thing that we have been about today that is so foreign to the tide of interest that's around us. Let's read on. From verse 16. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. And lastly, the little section about it's just two verses, three verses we'll read. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Returning to the opening... It is so like Luke and his interest in the welfare and the status <coughs> of women, among others, who in those days uh, suffered a considerable degree of disadvantage in their opportunities in life and in the way they were regarded by not just Jewish society of the time, but as Luke would well know, being we would reckon um, perhaps of a Gentile father, and uh, a Jewish mother. We can't be any more definite than that. Um, <clears throat> but he would be well aware of others who would have their eyes open to how Jesus of Nazareth valued each in society, crippled, beggars, disabled, 
people who were not well regarded in society, people who weren't in the inner circle of the upper crust or whatever else, the ugly names for ugly things that this world glories in. So he says, the twelve were with him, and we know who the twelve were, and they're very, very different characters, including the one that is drawn attention to repeatedly by the Gospel writers, I think in shock that they actually didn't realize the character of the man that was with him. Or they lamented their ineffectiveness in drawing him to understand the riches that he was losing day by day. And also some women, and then Luke calls it many, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, from whom seven demons had come out. What condition was she in by then? What condition? Did the Lord leave her? And he had been to work on those demons. <coughs> and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who would be one of those women who had a good deal of substance, I reckon, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women, so that's the many, were helping to support them out of their own means. I just do not know. I cannot find any guide to what one could expect of the substance that a Mary Magdalene would have because life with demons uh, isolated you from society. People were deeply afraid that what would happen to that person might happen to the rest of the household. So they were even in the house isolated and only some would continue in loyalty to stand by them. And that brought implications for your livelihood. And Luke would know all about that because he was trained in a school of medicine that paid attention to the social effects of illness. Illness of mind, illness of body, illness of a spiritual dimension that we've just touched on here. And he wants this to be the sounding note along with what unites the woman who was in the city and what the Lord had done for her and how he received her. And the widow of Nain, where the lost power went out in the presence of death. And these many women, where he had healed each one of them, one by one, knowing each their own circumstances and their own understanding and their longing for more than life had made them live with for these years of chronic illness. Take the opportunity to thank those who have prayed, prayed for our daughter Justine. She's had, as we last made connection, some 22 days in a row uh, of normal energy, which has been a very great blessing. 
and we believe it's continued to yesterday. And uh, we met her and Eunice uh, Foster of Derby at Trentham and had a great time together and please pray on. The Lord's power is still present to heal as he chooses, as he allows. And we are thus, as we should be, closely dependent on his provision. We receive from his hand. So we read about sowing and we said a bit about that. And then we read further about sowing. This little passage from the teaching of the Lord that's compressed here into little nuggets. Paying attention to what was said about the timing that Luke showed us as you go on through this chapter. Look for the um, connecting expressions because this gospel writer uses a remarkable variety, a very interesting series of connecting expressions. And this time he's putting his finger on the timing because he finds that very if, uh, moving, I think, as he's gathered these accounts and has learned from these people about how the Lord worked and did this astounding things for a medical man to record. And this, I believe, is as we learn from the other Gospels. The Lord spoke a good deal at the time when Matthew had, I think, heard the teaching and the preaching of the Lord, and then he came to his call. And he just was able to rise up from where the Lord called him from his tall booth because he had found out something about this man who was drawing the crowds. He would need to take an interest in that because of his work to find out who were around and about and who had passed his place of tall and who had not. What do you do about it? And he gathers together, I think, more than would be said on that particular day on the mountain. And sets it down there together. It's quite possible that the Lord said it all, but it's a tremendous amount to take in. Does a teacher overwhelm his audience with three chapters worth? Open, open question. Here I think the Lord has spoken again about those same things because he was going from town to town, village to village. So he's bound to be bringing the same message because that's what he came for. That was his purpose. And he expresses it in ways that will be remembered and he's helping them remember it by repeating it. I'm so grateful for that as the memory powers begin to play tricks. How grateful I am that the Lord works in this way through all our days while he has us here. Whatever the things that we begin to lose or get mixed up about. He still has a purpose in our being here and we distinctively can fulfill that purpose that the younger folk who are so spry and swift uh, may not be able to do they have their own sphere in which they're witnessing. And they overlap, of course. And older folk enjoy the witness of younger people and the life and activity of earlier days. 
remember it. And it's the more precious. Uh, we hurry to an end. Uh, he then comes to the families. <coughs> and Luke records this very briefly to make sure that it's there because this is when it happened. <coughs> and the Lord is made aware because the house is so crowded with uh, mother and his brothers and his sisters, I suppose, as well, uh, were concerned for his welfare because in Matthew tells us they said he's, he's not even stopping to eat and drink and uh, he's almost beside himself. He's taken up with this teaching of his and the lost sight of the fact that he had come for a purpose and he was fulfilling that in his swift days of opportunity before the authorities would close him down. And he puts them off, those authorities, and he keeps clear of them until he chooses the right moment when he lets them get in. But he knows it's coming, and by plan, and is using his time. It seems to me that the Lord that I know was getting the message that his mother and his brothers were there it was part of the fact that the brothers still didn't believe in him. It hadn't penetrated. And he goes to the door and he gently says, with a warm winning smile, my mother, my brothers, there are those who hear the, <coughs> the word of God and do his will. And that's part of the ministry to them. And it's written down, and the mother and the brothers would hear it plenty from all the people who were there that day, the select ones that they were in touch with. So it was, in a kindly way, delivered. There is nothing severe about the Lord speaking about the eternal welfare or destruction of the soul to other people. Serious, but in no way off-putting. People who even raise barriers and make jests and needle you and slag you and taunt you and the like. Behind that is a concern. And it's our business as witnesses, patiently, to wait a moment to get gently in with what they will understand and reach out to, because they are reaching out. They're getting so little from all that's weighing them down of the cares and the pleasures and the riches of this world. It's like heaving about the bedclothes the way we did as boys, playing with the bed covers and you piled one upon it top of the other and top of the other till you were kind of walking elephants feet and you bumped into the furniture. Gently, you could still explain to that making home. Um, people get so uh, deadened to the message of the Lord that they're looking for such a thing. And we can still, 21st century, we can still get it through to them. And so I come to a poem. Uh, 
we were intending to be half an hour uh, as David guided me, um, but this is what goes and happens. That's the wrong one. Put it away. And we get this here. This is a poem written by an American uh, woman who, uh, when she and her sister were very young, um, their mother died and the, uh, their father um, to try and make ends meet got a, an acquaintance to look after them and that wasn't success because that family had several children and these two children were made to feel they weren't very much wanted but there was a good friend a Christian friend of the mother who stood by them and found them a home with a couple who were with the Baptists and who uh, were very concerned to look after these Johnson children, Annie Johnson Flint. And the receiving parent's name was Flint, so they came to be called Flint, Annie Johnson Flint. If that wasn't enough to carry as a scar through life, there was deep gratefulness for being rescued from the early experience, but that really is a terrible scar in the impressionable years of early infancy. And the older girl, Annie, was aware enough that they were not wanted and that their plight was desperate. She decided she wanted to teach and she went after primary school after yeah, that's as much as they get then, uh, or after school. Um, she went to what they called the normal school, meaning they set a norm for education, like a college of education, for a year. And she wanted not to be a burden to the family that were taking them in. And she got out to work as soon as she could. She managed for three years of the you might say the early teaching, the probation years. But by the second <coughs> year, she found that rheumatoid arthritis was getting a grip of her. And the doctors of those days could only offer palliatives. And it progressed, and she had to stop work. Others might have turned bitter and resentful and shut down. But she gave herself to learning to write poetry as she had done before. Um, she and her friend would meet and read poems, the classics and Christian poetry, and they would write. And she has given us a new course. She was not to know then that she was going to have some 40 years of this till she was taken at the age of 66, 1932. And she gave us hymns that we have in our hymn book. And uh, Annie Johnson Flint, it's worth looking up to see what they are. I'll put you in touch with one other one. He gives more grace as the burden grows greater, uh, which is from the Evangelical Hymn Book of uh, the Evangelical Society of Wales. She says in later maturity, <coughs> 
I look not back. God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sinning, the regrets. She had a terrible temper when she was younger. She flared up and she said things she wished she hadn't and so on. She was very impatient. I leave them all with him who blots the record and graciously forgives and then forgets. I look not forward. God sees all the future. The road that short or long will lead me home. And he will face with me its every trial and bear for me the burdens that may come. Psalm 68. Center of Psalm 68. I look not round me, then would fears assail me. So wild the tumult of earth's restless seas, so dark the world, so filled with woe and evil, so vain the hope of comfort and of ease. This is for the 21st century, is it not? I look not inward. That would make me wretched. For I have not on which to stay my trust. Nothing I see save failures and shortcomings and weak endeavours crumbling into dust. But I look up into the face of Jesus, for there my heart can rest, my fears are still, and there is joy and love and light for darkness and perfect peace. And every hope fulfilled. Shall we ask the blessing?